Imagine that you have the ability to see flaws in what someone else creates. Flaws that could cause millions of dollars in damage. It could cause loss of life. They threatened to sue you to keep you quiet so that you couldn't reveal it. This is a situation that a lot of cybersecurity researchers have found themselves in over the past 30 years, knowing about something that they believe could cause imminent harm and feeling threatened because they know it. My first car was a piece of crap. When I got somewhere, I'd lock the door and think, why am I even locking this? There's nothing of value in here, and no one would steal this over literally any other car in this general area. And I think that's kind of the mentality that we often have with our personal information. Why would a hacker target me instead of somebody with a million dollars in their account? And that's completely logical. This isn't trailer park, boys. A criminal isn't trying to rob every vending machine they see. If my main source of income depended on stealing, I'd probably try and reduce the amount of times I had to do it by getting a lot at once. And that definitely happens. Hackers attack large corporations with malicious software that locks down their computers and network. It's called ransomware because it treats the company infrastructure like a hostage. You know the saying, we don't negotiate with terrorists? Well, it turns out we actually do. Just this spring, one of the largest meat processing companies in the world was targeted by the Russian hacking group, R-Evil, and paid a ransom of $11 million. In April, Colonial Pipeline was attacked and paid out $4.4 million to hackers. It actually impacted our critical infrastructure and led to widespread shortages because of idiots who went out and hoarded gas and plastic bags or whatever. If hackers can band together and force massive corporations to pay millions of dollars in order to access their own network, how devastating would a state-sponsored attack be? And would we even be able to defend against it or counterattack it once we'd been hit? The U.S. military spending is about the size of the next seven largest military budgets combined, and five of them are our allies. In a very unintelligent and outdated manner, we spend the vast majority of it on things like jets, aircraft carriers, missiles, tanks, and ground troops. The present and future of warfare is cyber. There's no need to blow something up when you can just turn it off. But back to the question of why hackers would target people like me instead of ones with millions of dollars. It's because they aren't targeting me. They're targeting my device. And the attacks won't just hit mine. They'll hit every single one. The obvious reason is to steal our identities, social security numbers, and credit cards. Instead of using them one by one like your neighborhood weed dealer, They'll sell them in bulk, on the dark web. The other main reason, which is far more terrifying, is to take control of those devices. It's like building an army of zombie computers. They're called botnets, which stands for robot network. Individually, they're weak, but when you have millions of them under your control, you can attack the critical infrastructure that supports a nation of millions. And when the power gets shut off, companies no longer know where to ship the food. In the South, the bread aisle gets sold out when a couple inches of snow is forecasted. So you can imagine how quickly our lives will be altered when we're attacked. I'm Lowell Berlanti. This is Prodigy. We need to defend ourselves. 
So cybersecurity is really important. Last year, we hit a 0% unemployment rate, and the industry is growing quickly. It's a very high-paying career, and we need people. I don't know about you, but being actively recruited my whole career sounds pretty nice to me. For this episode, I talked to three cybersecurity experts, Craig Young, Bo Woods, and Jack Resider. Craig Young is a principal cybersecurity researcher at a company called Tripwire that specializes in providing enterprise-level cybersecurity solutions. Bo Woods is a senior advisor for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which operates under the Department of Homeland Security to help keep America safe. Jack Resider was a network security engineer until he created the hit podcast, Darknet Diaries. He recently released his 100th episode, and I've listened to every single one. Let's start with Craig Young. An early interest was payphones, so my friends and I would spend a lot of time at the mall. There were um, different access codes that you could use to get information about the phone. You could type that into the payphone, and it would start telling you about how much money was in the phone and stuff like that. And This was just really quite cool to me. My father had shown me how to use the FTP protocol, file transfer protocol, and I was able to connect to NASA and start downloading some pictures. Neighbors saw that and started telling all the kids at school that Craig's a hacker, Craig's a hacker. And I guess this kind of set a bug under me that, wow, that's kind of something cool. People have respect towards this. This is Jack. As a young kid, my grandma had an Apple IIe, which is just crazy to think about, right? You know, there's no Windows operating system at that time. Why was my grandma so, like, into the computers and into, you know, technology? So I was lucky enough to just have a computer at home. And just that exposure alone, I think, really put me in the trajectory, right? So, you know, when when it was time for computer class at school, I was, like, way ahead of everyone else. And when you have that feeling, like, wow, you, you know, how come I'm so good at computers and everyone else isn't? It gives you that kind of confidence. We had this kind of hybrid network in my middle school where one of the teachers I remember asked me to help with fixing her computer. And while I was looking at figuring out what was going on, I had access to a command prompt and I ran some commands, which ultimately sent a message to all the computers in the school on the Novell Network Network. Mrs. Stemple, the computer teacher, was not happy about this. She was not impressed with my computer skills, but rather adamant about that I needed to be kicked out of the school because all of the kids in the computer lab at this time lost their work, uh, had nothing to show except for a little message that said, hello world, or something like that, something very benign. She set up a meeting with the principal, and uh, my parents were called in, I guess, and Mrs. Stemple is telling Mr. Rump how uh, I really need to be punished badly for this, that this was very unacceptable, that I realized, oh, Rump, that's actually the name that's associated with the passwords that I found on every single computer. And so I said to him, um, Mr. Rump, your password is XX Diamond X, isn't it? And he just looked at me and asked how I had done this. And I explained, um, every single classroom has Trumpet Winsock on the Windows computers, at least, and they all have your password in there. And it's very easy to open up Notepad and read it out of there. He thought about what was going on, and I'm very, very lucky that he was an understanding soul. And through my parents' insistence and his understanding that I was not looking to do any harm, that I was just a curious young person, he was appropriate in giving me, I think, a day of detention and nothing more than that. Fast forward a few years, Craig is now in high school. I had taken a, an AP computer science class in high school. I started poking around on the systems again, and 
noticed that um, there was this Visual Fox Pro database that I could access. It had some default passwords I could get into it with, and then I had just access to all of the HR stuff from the teachers, the grading records. I could view what the teachers were making in terms of salary, and separately, I could also modify what uh, grades were being given out or being reported by the teachers. And I very quickly brought this to the attention of the school administration. Obviously, I didn't want to have any false appearances that I was doing something mischievous with that. There's not much bigger that you can get first than a student being able to access and change grades. At this point, Craig has learned quite a bit about where the line is that you don't want to cross. But it wasn't the last time he'd run into issues. Meanwhile, Jack is figuring out what he wants to do with his life. Because I felt like I was good at it and I enjoyed playing around on them and stuff, I thought, okay, why don't I go into a career for computers? So I went to university to get a degree in um, computer engineering. So Jack goes to university and graduates with a degree in computer engineering. He seems so driven to me that I'm sure he got an internship at a reputable company. I felt like hot stuff, so I just didn't choose to take an intern. I was like, what? No, man, I'm, I'm an engineer. I have an engineering degree. You should be like, there should be 20 companies looking for me. But that just wasn't the case. So I uh, didn't find a job. And... Yeah, for like 10 years, I didn't do anything technical. It was weird. I was just kind of bouncing around doing odds and ends jobs, not even computer-related. Like one of the jobs I had was a dealer in a casino. I was like, okay, look, I've got a degree in this. I need to go back to computers. This is ridiculous. I love tech. I need to be involved. So I was pretty rusty at that point, right? 10 years of not being around them. And so I got a certificate. It's a Cisco Certified Network Associate And um, that taught me networking, which is, you know, nice, fresh certificate that put me top of the list for, you know, as a job candidate in a network operations center. So a company that monitors networks. And so they hired me on. From there, I just went crazy. Got cert after cert after cert after cert. Eventually, a um, security engineer position opened up. And I didn't really know what security was. I was just like, oh, it's it's a computer engineering position. I would love to be an engineer. So I applied for it, and they took me on, and I was like, okay, I have no idea what to do here. But as I was learning, I was realizing this is the perfect place for me because you have to really know a little about everything when it comes to security. Jack found the perfect job where he was challenged enough that he could really satisfy his curiosity. Craig is doing very well at Georgia Tech, but learns another lesson about the egos associated with responsible disclosure. I haven't told anybody else really this story since graduating, but I had a graduate-level computer security class that I audited as an undergraduate. I'm not going to name the professor now, but I talked to him about doing a research project where I would see how much you could learn by using one of the techniques we had talked about in his class deployed against the residential networks. And he told me this would be fine, that I could go ahead and do this, but that I needed to document everything that I did. Couldn't be harming anybody in the process, and I would simply need to give a report about this to the Office of Information Technology. I went along with that. I did this, and I gave my report. But as soon as I got to the point of saying there was this number of Social Security numbers disclosed and um, this number of credit card numbers disclosed, they cut off my presentation, went and talked to the professor for a little while, and then came back and were demanding all of my hard drives. And the professor was effectively disavowing me, saying, oh, no, no, I didn't give Craig permission to do all of this. Uh, No, no, no way. And so that was another really um, 
pivotal moment, I guess, in my development as a security professional and understanding how people respond when confronted with security issues. They had wanted to drop me out of school. Um, that would have been a huge financial expense to me because I wouldn't have gotten to finish the semester that I spent all this money on. And so I pleaded with them and arranged that instead of getting kicked out and having that kind of disciplinary action, I would develop for them some scripts that would help their IT operations recognize if anybody was doing the kind of thing that I was doing. And I did do that for them. I made for them a system. I think I called it Perfume. Um, had some clever acronym that went along with that because it was against people sniffing on your network. I sent that over to them. I got confirmation that I was out of hot water, so to speak, limited my interactions with them from then on. I often say that my ability to understand when someone shows me I'm wrong is my greatest strength. Because I feel like it's not that common. People tend to get defensive, especially when it's something you should already know by someone less experienced in front of your boss. So they took advantage of their power dynamic over Craig, and instead of praising his disclosure, they forced him to solve the problem. Craig had learned an important life lesson. Some people are kind of just assholes. There's stories of, of people who are very honest and good and just trying to help reporting stuff to Google, right? And saying, look, there's a bug in your Android system, uh, and I just want to help you out. I haven't told anybody. I just hope you see this and fix it right away. And they retaliate by, you know, going back and telling that person's boss and trying to get that person fired or whatever, right? Just like reporting them. And it's like, are you, are you aware that your employee is hacking our Android operating system? And, you know, this is in the days before Google had a good bug bounty program to have an avenue to report this kind of stuff and just didn't find it useful or helpful that people were telling them about bugs. But Craig graduates from Georgia Tech. And if you can't tell, he's very good at what he does. So he gets a job at a top tech company. My first job out of Georgia Tech was working for IBM Internet Security Systems. Craig's computer and security knowledge, combined with his electrical engineering degree, turned out to be a perfect fit. This also then got me a lot of exposure with the IBM X-Force team and the really amazing security research they were doing at this time. Craig spends five years at IBM and takes a job at a company called N-Circle. I never heard of N-Circle, so I was like, why leave IBM for some small team? But N-Circle was actually a big deal. They created and sold the best vulnerability scanner designed to help enterprises assess and remediate risk. Over time, my brain really started to put together patterns on these things and recognize, here are the things that are commonly going wrong in these different types of software. Then I started seeing those kinds of flaws myself and working with vendors and reporting them. This job requires him to spend hundreds of hours studying vulnerabilities. His security knowledge grew quickly and did not go unnoticed. He started getting requests to present his research at conferences, which gave him motivation to work even harder. So while in school his efforts were met with fear and retribution, in the corporate world, those vulnerabilities he had been disclosing started becoming a real issue for major corporations. And once companies start losing clients and money, they start to pay attention. You know, at some point there was a lesson that Microsoft had to learn that they weren't taking security seriously uh, in their own products. There were hackers showing them, like, hey, we can go in and out of your systems all day long. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? And they just didn't really want to do anything. They're just like, you guys are bad. Stop doing that. And eventually the government or, or some major customers of Microsoft were like, look, we simply cannot use your product, period, because it's insecure. So goodbye. We'll, we don't want to do business with you. And that's when Microsoft really realized, like, 
if we're going to be securing governments and sensitive places like banks and stuff, this is a problem for us. So they they completely changed their tune. And yeah, they, they were one of the early ones to adopt a bug bounty program and telling people like, look, if you see something, tell us because we'd love to reward you for it. And I think in the early days, it was just maybe a t-shirt or something, but still it was a nice thank you instead of just telling hackers, yeah, we, we don't call us, we don't care. So it was a, it was a nice change of, of pace there. And yeah, I think they've really benefited from the community helping them find exploits and reporting them ethically. Jack has an amazing episode about a kid who spends years in and out of prison for hacking. He eventually starts using his skills for bug bounties and makes a ton of money. It's episode 60, Doggy G. Okay, back to Craig. At this point, Craig has been in the industry for years and was making a name for himself. He attended DEF CON in 2014. DEF CON is like Comic-Con, but for cybersecurity. It's a major event, and each year they hold competitions. Winning a competition can easily get you recruited by organizations like Google or the NSA. DEFCON's competitions let researchers attempt to hack devices, like the iPhone. So in 2014, DEFCON held a competition challenging researchers to find vulnerabilities in popular routers. Finding a flaw in a system or device that hasn't been reported is called a zero day because the company who made it has been aware of it for zero days. I was able to find like 10 zero days and just take complete control over half the routers that they had there. Finding 10 zero days at DEF CON is a big deal. Since then, Craig has responsibly disclosed a ton more vulnerabilities to some of the world's largest tech companies. And even though companies have started adopting programs to reward people like Craig, the problem has not gone away. Just last week, a reporter discovered and reported a critical vulnerability with her state's Department of Education website. Just two days later, the governor, Mike Parson, called the reporter a hacker and promised to criminally prosecute. What's tragically hilarious about this story is in the state's press release, which stated that, quote, the hacker took the records of at least three educators, decoded the HTML source code, and viewed the social security number of those specific educators. Wow. Decoded the HTML source code. Hacker mode. Mm. If you're not aware, decoding the HTML is a joke. Anybody who accidentally hits F12 or right-clicks a web page and clicks view source code is doing the exact same thing. The crime is that they had this private information available to anyone. Yet to cover up their incompetence, they're trying to blame the person who made them aware of it. This is the issue we're facing. Disclosing a vulnerability can get you criminally charged by embarrassed idiots. But back to Craig. He now works for a company that understands and values his abilities. But his success at DEF CON, discovering 10 zero days in routers, points out a pretty big problem with our devices. It's a, a perennial problem because um, with some of the vendors, you would find that they have all of the different models they make being vulnerable to the same attack. But when you would report something to them, they would say, okay, we'll fix it in that specific model and firmware version that you've reported it in, but then leave a dozen other models that are very similar, all vulnerable to the same attack. Um, things have gotten better over the last uh, seven years or so, but it's been a slow uphill battle. I play chess a lot, and I'm always looking at to see if somebody can checkmate me on the back rank, right? I've got to make sure my king has an escape route. The definition of security to me 
is really being able to do business in a hostile environment. And the internet is hostile and it's unpredictable. How do you do business out there? You've really got to secure your thing. And how do you secure it? You have to know what problems exist. And how do you know what problems exist? The bad guys will teach you. We're about to get into the Internet of Things, and instead of breaking for a bunch of ads that only poor souls who can't reach their phone will hear, I'm going to just talk about something I actually care about. So it's no secret that I'm into Reddit. I think I mention it like every episode. As I got into podcasting subreddit, I kept coming across a user giving really solid advice. So I clicked his username and checked out his profile. Okay, yeah. This guy's pretty good, and he has a link to his blog. Let's see what that's about. I read a post. All right, this is really insightful. Right-click and check the source code. Not WordPress. A different CMS called Ghost. ADHD my way over to Ghost. Hmm, pretty cool. Back to the blog. The author's name was Jack, and that's when I realized that this person giving a bunch of random newbies advice about podcasting was none other than Jack Resider. Here's why that's interesting. So I work for the biggest podcast network in the world, but I'm also really involved in the indie community. So I I sort of see both sides. Starting a successful podcast independently is really fun, but kinda, sorta, really hard. Making one that gets a lot of downloads is like making a successful app. You may have a good idea, but executing it is neither easy nor intuitive. Jack worked in cybersecurity and wanted to listen to a podcast telling NPR style stories about hackers. So he looked it up and realized it didn't exist. Damn, hang on. I'm a pretty smart guy, he thought. Why don't I make it? Now millions of people have thought the same thing, and they were probably smart too. They bought mics, picked a clever name, made a logo, recorded some episodes, and finally put it out there for the world to hear. Post a link to social media, and seven downloads. Wow, my mom didn't even listen. Crap, how do I do marketing? It's like a whole nother job. Jack didn't have a company to promote his show like me. He built it with careful intention. His goal was creating a show that listeners would binge and share. That way, marketing paid dividends. It's called Darknet Diaries, and it tells true stories about the dark side of the internet. I can't recommend it enough. Uh, Here's a few of my favorite episodes. I'll link them in the show notes. Episode 21, Black Duck Eggs. Episode 45, Xbox Underground. Episode 99, The Spy. Those are three easy ones to get hooked, but seriously, every single one is great. All right, back to Prodigy. This is Bo. The Internet of Things is the idea that if it connects to electricity, eventually it will have a computer and connectivity in it. It will be connected and attached to the Internet as we know it in order to serve its purpose better or to provide more information to the people using it and to the manufacturer or anybody else in the chain of command. Most of us have a few devices we use to access the internet. Our phones, tablets, computers, Alexas, doorbell cameras, and TVs are probably the main ones. I also have these Wi-Fi connected smart bulbs so I can adjust the color temperature and brightness from my phone. Some people have smart thermostats and even refrigerators. When I first saw those, I remember thinking, like, why the hell does your refrigerator need Wi-Fi? Like, are people watching The Office in their kitchen? And then I saw a demo where you could use your phone to see what was inside or display your calendar and do lists and control the temperature. Then I thought, 
That still seems pretty unnecessary, but kind of cool. But it's really not just about pointless features to make your home life easier or to show off to your unimpressed friends. It does make things more efficient. When I try to think of all the internet-connected devices I know, I immediately think of the stuff I own. But it's not simply stuff in your house. It's everything. Vending machines, buildings, and parking meters. We'd probably be okay with all that stuff. But there's also millions of devices in farming, healthcare, water, military, electrical, transportation, government, and more. The list goes on and on. So our dependence on connected technology is growing much faster than our ability to secure it in areas impacting human life and public safety. The threat or the potential harm is any capability that you can put in the hands of a trained expert to improve people's lives um, or that can run autonomously to automate some of the things we do all the time can be harnessed for adversaries to do harm either on purpose or accidentally as a byproduct of just gaining access to that device. You may not even realize that they're doing harm, but they can still hurt people. Smart devices are getting cheaper and more common by the day. My smart light bulbs were like $10 each. And I wonder how secure they are and how fun it would be to get hacked through my light bulb. It's currently estimated that there are 10 billion IoT devices in the world today. We have a lot of different devices out there now that are coming up very quickly, not having a lot of security analysis, and they're coming out of vendors that don't necessarily have strong security expertise for securing their infrastructure. If one of these new vendors, or even an established vendor, has a very successful product out there, it gets installed in a million places, and then their infrastructure gets compromised, an attacker can actually launch malware out into all of those different endpoints. When you have a situation where you have just such a huge mass of distributed computing resources, distributed network resources that have been compromised, somebody can combine all of that into attacks against the critical infrastructure of the internet. You can almost certainly take down very important functions of society just by harnessing that power against things like DNS servers. This is kind of something that keeps me up a bit at night. The thought that we will at some point experience an internet-wide outage because of the abundance of IoT devices on the internet, and that somebody is going to take advantage of this inherent trust that everybody has for the vendors of these IoT devices to keep them safe. It's not some paranoid delusion to imagine a virus that could infect millions or even a billion of them. That sort of power could shut down countries in minutes. That's kind of what um, the Mirai botnet took advantage of is a lot of insecure devices out there that are just on the internet, right? Five years ago, almost to the day, a large part of the internet was shut down in the east coast of the United States. The origin was a worm that infected insecure IoT devices. Once the device was infiltrated, it would help scan the internet for other insecure devices. After an army of devices was amassed, the owner could attack. What's initially funny about it is that the Mirai botnet was originally created to attack Minecraft servers. Okay, so like a bunch of 12-year-olds get kicked offline or whatever for a while, right? No big deal. No, actually, there's real money in hosting Minecraft servers. Shutting down competing servers would lead to an influx of players to yours. This could mean thousands of dollars every single day. But then the hackers began targeting companies. Those hackers actually owned a company that protected against these types of attacks. So they'd attack a company, then get them to hire them to stop it. It's like firefighters putting out a fire that they started. The way the attack worked was by having each device request information from a server, just like when you visit a website. 
When a server gets 300,000 requests all at once, over and over, it's unable to complete any of them. This is called a Distributed Denial of Service Attack, or DDoS. Botnets are also used to send you all the mother freaking spam emails we all get every day, and the calls about extending your car's warranty. If a few hackers were able to infect 300,000 devices five years ago, imagine what a sophisticated criminal organization or state-sponsored group could do. So why are these IoT devices so easily hacked? They don't take security as their, as their primary thing, right? They just move quick, get something out there, um, hope for the best, and had features that nobody wants. Um, so <laughs> I want the secure features, right? I want to uh, disconnect it from the cloud and just use it internally or something like that. Like, I don't need it to be online. I just want it when I'm home to be able to access it from home. But, you know, we, we kind of take that approach of, well, we just want it to work. And if we just want it to work, then it needs this all these extra abilities connected to the internet and all this kind of stuff. And that's the trade-off there is ease of use versus secure it, but make it harder to use. Also, these attacks can often have unintended consequences, ones that might just kill you. I was at a hospital. Their natal intensive care unit has something called fetal heart monitors. And if you don't know, the natal intensive care unit is where the most precious patients, the most vulnerable patients tend to go. It's premature babies most often. And those premature babies are hooked up to monitors so you can check their vital signs, like what's their temperature, what's their heart rate, what's their blood pressure. And it really gives doctors and nurses a competitive edge over any type of condition that would cause those babies to go downhill quickly. So these heart monitors were getting infected with a piece of malicious software meant to steal banking passwords. The criminals just pointed it at the internet, hit go, and they didn't know what systems it was going to infect. Inadvertently, they ended up getting onto these fetal heart monitors and causing them to shut down about every 15 minutes. When that happened, they gave me a call and they said, hey, can you fix this? I know that you don't work on medical devices, but this looks like a computer. And so you work on computers, can you help out? I ended up getting in touch with the manufacturer and because it was malicious software, they weren't able to really support that or help that. I had a couple of options at that point. I could either accept that and we just go back to 100% manual care or we could try and figure out a different way to get these devices fixed back in operating condition. Working with the hospital, went to the, the CEO with a draft memo that outlined the current state, the risks that we had, what we planned to do, and put the decision in their hands. They said, yep, go ahead and take care of it. We, we need those devices online. So, with the stroke of a pen, gave me the ability to go in and effectively hack those medical devices the same way that the malicious software got in, but I was able to do it in order to stop the malicious software, close the hole that was allowing it in, and then allow the doctors and nurses to get back to saving those patients' lives. Bo was able to use his abilities to save lives. He didn't have to defeat any ninjas or anything, but still pretty cool. The hospital was lucky to have someone like Bo they could call on. 
But that won't always be the case. Are these kind of attacks just a part of our life now? Or is there a way to make these devices we depend on more secure? I think that there probably need to be government regulations ultimately that are going to address some of these things. So things to make companies a little bit more responsible for their products moving forward, not just responsible for them until they get sold. So this is something that also comes up, I guess, in conversations about recycling, that um, a company making plastic bags and plastic packaging products might need to take on the responsibility for caring about what happens to those after a consumer uh, throws them out. In this case, however, it's vendors, internet vendors, need to have some level of responsibility about the security of their devices after they've been sold, making sure that they're getting updates, that there's due diligence being done towards security, both at the endpoints and also within the infrastructure that is effectively gatekeeping all of these devices. And by that, I mean, when you're looking at your Alexa device or most of these other quote unquote smart devices, they're not really that smart. They're really just connecting back into a larger computing system to be able to exchange data and get software updates. And that is a central point of weakness for all of these devices. Right now, if we go into a store, you and I would walk into a Best Buy together. We can look at an aisle of different smart home gadgets and other things. And the only factors that we really have for deciding what to buy are what features and what price we see. We don't have a really meaningful way of being able to evaluate the security of brand A versus brand B. But if we had something like a cyber underwriters laboratory, a cyber UL, an independent testing laboratory that can you know, run through various security metrics, does this thing have default passwords? Does it take automatic updates? Are the updates cryptographically signed, et cetera, et cetera? And computing a clear, straightforward score that gets labeled onto the boxes, that now allows security and privacy to become more of a differentiating factor when consumers are really voting with their wallet. So aside from having an awesome career and making a bunch of money, if you get into cybersecurity, you'll be making us more safe against criminals and state actors. We definitely need more people getting eyes on this, and we need a more diverse set of people so that we can get a richer set of ideas, because uh, this is really how defenders succeed against offense. You need to have a rich set of ideas, and you need to have a lot of people putting a lot of effort. We're struggling when we try and hire people that have security expertise it's difficult to find good qualified people. And, and that's a problem because we're really getting to a point in our society where very few people understand the ins and outs of the technology and security can very quickly get out of hand in a society like this. People not being able to get their government services, not being able to access ATMs, being without power, without communication, no cell phone service. That's a, a really, really scary thought. We've seen with COVID-19 how quickly some aspects of society might start falling apart in these scenarios. I strongly encourage anyone listening to consider the career path for themselves or their lazy teenager who plays Skyrim all day. Turns out those computer skills can be put to good use and are quite valuable. In general, I'm very hopeful about a bright, connected future. I believe that we're in an awkward teenage period between when we have these capabilities and when we really know how to harness them and use them for the best of humanity. And what I want to do is to get to that equilibrium faster, to understand better, uh, and to build in the types of protections that we have for everything else so that we can trust these things more and know that they are trustworthy. Jack has some advice on how to keep your own information secure. I think that there's three things that I recommend people do. 
um, get an antivirus, keep it up to date, um, patch when you can, right? So if your operating system says there's an update, get that update, impl- install it, get it going, or any apps that you have, install those updates as well. Updates are patching security fixes, right? So um, people won't be able to infiltrate you as well as easy if everything's patched up. And then the lastly is, yeah, use a password manager and have a different complex password for every website you go to, something long and crazy that you'll never remember. And that's the reason why you have a password manager because you use one password to get into your password manager and then it has all your passwords. And of course you have to make sure nobody gets into your password manager because then they have access to everything. But um, it's it's much safer because what we've seen is, you know, like there was a big breach at LinkedIn in 2012, I believe, and they uh, leaked millions of passwords for everyone, for all their users. So those passwords are now out there. And how many people use the same password on LinkedIn as they did on Twitter, as they did on Facebook, as they did on PayPal, on their banking websites? And that's just a no-no in today's world, right? You want to use different passwords for every website because your the, your password is out there, you know, available in so many different database dumps at this point. I, I guarantee it. So just, you know, make sure it just goes to that one and no other. Like, don't let the criminals have an easy way to get in. By the way, Jack has an amazing episode of Darknet Diaries about how Trump's Twitter got hacked twice. It's episode 87, The Guild of the Grumpy Old Hackers. If you're not using a password manager and reusing passwords, you need to take this message seriously. Go to haveibeenpwned.com to see what breaches got your passwords. Pwned is spelled P-W-N-E-D, haveibeenpwned.com. Jack recommends one password to store all your passwords. That's a company, and it's the number one, one password. Also, I'm a big fan of privacy.com, which lets you create temporary credit cards with custom limits that you can cancel whenever. There's links to these products at darknetdiaries.com slash sponsors. The company that Craig worked for after IBM, N-Circle, was bought by Tripwire, where he currently works. They're a very reputable organization that makes enterprise security tools. It's time to stop taking the fact that your company hasn't been hacked yet for granted and check out Tripwire. In the media industry, we say there's two types of people, those who haven't lost a hard drive and those who back up. You don't have to learn every lesson the hard way. Visit tripwire.com and check out what they have to offer. Prodigy was created and produced by me, Lowell Berlanti. The executive producer is Tyler Klang. Prodigy is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits 
LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.